Hey, John Matalavich here from the Human Advancement Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to publish this conversation. Our guest is two-time Olympian Jason Turdman. I was fortunate to meet Jason shortly after his debut appearance in Sochi. He returned to the Olympic stage in 2018 where he had a fourth-place finish in the Luge Team Relay. And as we'll talk about here, Jason's Olympic career is far from over. We also discuss daily life at the Olympic Training Center, Jason's long career in Luge, which began at the age of 10, and this led into a dive on the value of being a multi-sport athlete. We also talk about what he felt going to the Olympics for the first time, what life is like in the Olympic Village. Jason mentioned that his events were over in the first few days of the Games, so we had lots of time to see other landmark performances as well. We also talk about his meeting snowboarder Sean White, which I thought was interesting. But my personal favorite topic was on the question of the self-talk that Jason uses to keep his motivation high in training. With all this and more, let's just get into today's conversation. Hey, this is John Matalavich from the Human Advancement Podcast and from Ruthless uh, Performance. Um, I'm joined today by a, a special guest, a, a Pennsylvania native also, uh, uh, Jason Turdeman, who is now up in uh, uh, Lake Placid. Um, uh, he's a, an Olympic athlete um, in Luge. Uh, you want to say a little, give yourself a little intro there, Jason? Uh, yeah, sure, John. Um, my name is Jason Turdeman, born and raised in uh, Pennsylvania. I moved to Lake Placid, New York in 2007 to fully uh, chase this crazy dream of a, a young child of competing in the Olympic Games. I've been lucky enough to, to do that twice and represent the United States at two separate Olympics, one in Sochi and one in Pyeongchang. And I'm currently still a training athlete and competing, um, getting ready for hopefully my third and final Olympic berth. Uh, why do you say your your final is that just does that tend to be the uh, the lifespan of a of an Olympic athlete in, in um, sport? So luge is very unique in the fact that it's an experience based sport. It takes a lot of time to get used to being comfortable on a sled. I know people back home they watch it once every four years at the Olympics, but this is something we do every year, every winter. Uh, we have a World Cup tour and a World Championship competition, and it's really the kind of sport you tend to hit your peak later um, in your career, usually late 20s, early 30s. I'm 31 right now. I uh, went to my first Olympics at 25, and it's starting to take its toll. I've been comp competing and training for 20 years, and uh, your shoulders take a beating, your back takes a little bit of a beating, but it's really how, how well an athlete is able to just prolongate their health of their back and their shoulders. And if you're able to keep healthy, I've seen people compete and actually win medals in the Olympic games at 40 and 42 years old. So maybe for me, I'd be ending a little early, but um, I've dedicated my entire adult life to this sport so far. And um, you know, I've, I've been to the big show twice. I've, I've had the experiences. It's time for me to you know, chase this dream one last time of, of landing on the podium at the games. And then, try and move on and start a family and, and enjoy the, the after career uh, lifestyle. 
Awesome. If you don't mind me asking, what were your what were your placements at the what 2014 and 2016 Olympics? Uh, so in 2014, I got 11th place in the doubles competition, uh, and then we ended up in sixth place in the team event. And then in Pyeongchang, that was my first games in Sochi, so I was going in, young kid, bright eyed. Oh my gosh, this is crazy. Um, yeah. Second games come around. I was going into the competition ranked fifth in the world the season before. My teammate and I were third in the world. So we were coming in with some expectations of a great result. Um, we screwed up the doubles competition on the second run, ended up in 10th, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't bad. Top 10 in the world is a big mistake. Uh, but sometimes there's races where I would just wish I could get that with making a mistake. Um, and then we ended up in fourth place uh, in the team event, only – 0 0.106 from the podium after three miles of racing and three and a half minutes of track running. Um, no kidding. Yeah, we were, that was, to me, that was one of the most emotional roller coaster days of my life. I hope that it stays at the peak. Uh, I really <laughs> would rather never live through that again, but, uh, you know, that's, that could be a realization going into what could be my third game. So just trying to, trying to keep myself motivated and chase that dream one last time. That's awesome. So I, I know you're saying, you know, it's a sport where, um, where, where, where athletes tend to peak later in their career. But um, from what I was reading, it, it seems as though you, you took up the sport um, at the age of 12. Is that correct? Uh, I think it was 10, actually, the first time I tried it. Um, I made the team, the development program when I was 12, though. I, I got a little taste of it when I was 10 in the summertime in our recruitment tour. It's called the White Castle Slider Search. Great little play on words there for them uh, and for us, really. But uh, what we do is we take wheel sleds, modified, similar to what we ride on the ice. We modify them with rollerblade wheels, and we, we find hills and cities and, and small towns. Uh, we line them with hay bales, set up a cone course. We give a little introduction on how the sleds work, uh, usually about 15, 20 minutes. Then there's about a two-hour session where we actually let the kids slide on the wheel sleds. Um, we set up cone courses. It gradually gets more and more advanced. The It's, it's kind of a... It's pretty interesting. You can watch the kids really pick it up, um, even within 15, 20 minutes. And by the end of the day, we're going from the top of the hill. We have a ramp set up to get extra speed. The cone gates are super wide. Kids are steering like crazy, uh, having a blast. And then usually we see about 5,000 kids in the summertime. And then it weans down to only about 100 to 120 kids get invited to one of the two tracks in the United States, either Park City, Utah, or here in Lake Placid, New York. And then they get a full week of on ice, real luge. From there, out of the 120 kids they see in the wintertime, maybe 12, 13 children get chosen to be a part of our development program and you work your way up the ladder. There's about a seven tier ladder from there. And eventually, if you get to the top of the rings, you end up at an Olympic games and, and really get to enjoy the fruits of all your labor. The ultimate pyramid scheme. It's crazy, man. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a really skinny pyramid. <laughs> I think uh, in, in economics, um, they they refer to a lot of these, uh, they refer to this type of um, professional model as a tournament model where there's a lot of people vying for a very small number of, of spots at that at that high level. Um, when or where, so, you know, we're, we're Pennsylvania based here. So a lot of the people that are going to be listening to this are, are from around here as well. What, where was the scouting event at that where, uh, where they found you? So my first year I tried out in Syracuse. Okay. I, my mom saw a flyer. This is literally how I got started. My mom saw a flyer. I was in sixth grade. Yeah. And uh, my mom saw a flyer. She worked 
uh, used to work for Verizon. She's retired from that now. Um, and they used to be the title sponsor of USA Luge for 30 some odd years. And she saw a flyer at work one day. She comes home from, from work. I got home from school and she goes, hey, Jason, you want to go try Luge in two weekends up in Syracuse? And being from Berwick, Pennsylvania, uh, NEPA, a little bit of Central PA, my reaction immediately was, mom, what's Luge? Um, never heard of it. I don't remember seeing it on the on the TV as a kid. Um, Though we always watch the Olympic Games, I think that's something that's great about uh, the Olympic Games. It's just always bringing families together to watch, you know, sporting feats. And uh, but I got home. I she asked me if I want to do it. I said I have no idea what that is. What is it? She said verbatim, "I'm not really sure, but the kid on the poster looked like they were having a blast." <laughs> and so that's all the convincing ten-year-old Jason needed to go try this brand new thing uh, about three and a half hours from home. I got invited to Lake Placid that first year. I got my first taste of on ice. I was only 10. They accidentally put me in a camp uh, with 12-year-olds, with so I was looking real small. I'm not a big guy anyway, never have been, never will be. Um, but it didn't look good. Uh, you know, kids are pulling faster starts than me in the training sessions, and I'm really slow because it's a gravity sport, and I'm a lot smaller than these other kids. It didn't work out for me my first year. I didn't get invited to the development program, but I fell in love with the sport immediately. Super fun. I've always been someone that's ridden my bike as fast as possible, found a big hill, bomb the hill, like just go as fast as possible. And uh, yeah, it caught my attention real quick. The second year I tried out, I tried out in Philly. So I got to try it in PA, which was cool. Um, got invited back to Lake Placid again for the second year in a row, made the program. Uh, my first year as an athlete in the program, I was 12. So you weren't wrong there with getting my start when I was 12. Okay. Um, but I just had a taste of it when I was a little bit younger. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I've been working my way up the ladder ever since. Um, since my first Olympic birth in Sochi, we have actually brought the slider search to Berwick, my hometown, for the last six years. We've brought in quite a few athletes from that slider search into our development program. And right now we have two kids on our junior national candidate team. Um, one's name is Gavin Davis. He's from Berwick. The other is Emma Taney. She's from Berwick. Uh, which is really cool for me. It's not something I ever set out to do when I started the sport. You know, I was a 10-year-old kid, 11, 12-year-old. No idea what I'm doing. Just this is something super fun. If I get the opportunity to do it, I'm going to do it. Here we are 20 years later. and I've impacted the lives of a few kids, which is really cool. Um, and I get to watch them. They actually came up this year to my World Cup uh, in Lake Placid. Unfortunately, my teammate and I crashed in the race in the second run after sitting in a, a fight for a podium position. But that's racing. I uh, still got to celebrate a great day with the kids. It was cool for them to come and watch. I mean, they weren't just there to watch me. They were there to watch the best in the world compete. Uh, and for them, that's a very unique uh, experience as well. I remember being a, a kid that came up to watch a World Cup my first time and just being amazed at the speed. Because when you're a kid, you go from lower on the track, you're learning. You maybe reach 35, 40 miles an hour while we're going off the top at 75, 80 miles an hour and just humming through corners these kids aren't even touching yet. Um, <laughs> And it's it's just a really cool experience to to see it at a young age where that's what I want to do. And uh, it kind of makes me reminisce a little bit about being a, a teenager coming up in the sport. It's kind of cool. Yeah, that is neat. And, I, and I, I'll give you a lot of praise for what you said about, you know, kind of bringing the sport back to Berwick. I, I, uh, I actually, the last uh, episode of this I recorded, I, I was talking with someone else about how, you know, a lot of people that um, do have skills or any kind of aptitude, they, they tend to leave the area. So it, it is good to see people kind of bringing, bringing something back, back around. And, and, and yeah. I definitely appreciate that. 
Well, yeah, I, I mean, the NEPA area in general and my hometown of Berwick has been the biggest support system for me to do this. I remember even when I was 12, 13, it cost money to, you know, my parents had to drive up to Lake Placid, drop me off, take days off work. Um, we had team fees, you know, track fees, sliding uh, equipment I had to buy. I would send out letters, my mom, uh, my dad, amazing people. I can't imagine, like, I can't imagine giving up all that they gave up to help me get to where I am. And it's been cool that I've gotten to share, you know, all these experiences with them. But growing up, it's, it's tough. And the town of Berwick, it would donate money to my funding um, and help me out. And there's no better way that I can find to give back than to help the next generation of kids from Berwick, you know, reach for something different. We started a non-for-profit after Sochi. Um, my mother, it's called the the Comet Foundation in Pursuit of Excellence. And what we do is we try and give scholarships to high school kids or middle school kids from Berwick or the surrounding area that are trying to do something different. Um, maybe not so mainstream, luge isn't a mainstream sport. Um, so I'm trying to help small niche hobbies or passions become something real for, for the next generation. And it's been really great to be able to give back and. Um, adds a little bit more to the whole the whole story it is that that is and you know as you're saying it is a bit of a niche sport but it's it's unique in that you know coming from northeast pa we're we're in such a a football dominant area so you know and nothing not taking anything away from football but it's good for kids to see opportunities in other sports i mean you know i i came from swimming the first high school i went to didn't even have a program i had to swim as an independent so you know just to kind of see that there is all these alternatives out there is, is something that's that's definitely good for for some younger kids that might not have the aptitude to to make football or or just don't even have any desire to make football like me i i just i was completely opposed to the idea of just the sweatiness of it and <laughs> i i never i never played a snap in my life yeah and that that's another question i was going to ask is um you know so you, you started really getting going to you went through the program with lake placid starting at 12 we were there before that. Have, were you uh, participating in any other sports at that time or since then? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was a baseball player, basketball player. I actually had to give up basketball uh, for luge because it's the same season. Um, I ran cross country in high school. Um, you know, that was a big thing. Our coaches always wanted us to do other sports and stay active other ways, especially when you're a teenager and you're developing all your, your coordination and your, your total athleticism. Um, it's very good to be a multi-sport athlete. It's great for body control, especially for luge. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a finesse sport. And, you know, I know people think we're not doing anything when we're laying on the sled and that's what it should look like. I mean, the best in the world make it look like it's nothing. And that's harder to do than it is, you know, going on 80, 90 miles an hour, a foot off the ice with minimal protection and a lot of control over something that it takes a small amount to, to drive. It's got amazing steering on our sleds. And uh, just having full body awareness and control comes from playing multiple sports. And I was lucky enough to be able to do that. And I think a lot of that has helped me become the best luge athlete that I can be. I, I'm happy to hear you say that um, specifically because, like you said about, you know, it's a sport where peaking happens later on in an athlete's career. Um, and the only way that you could really ensure that there is um, time in an athlete's career later on is, is that that multi-sport um Absolutely. development model 
Um, the more more you can do at a younger age, it tends to be tends to be better. That's one of the things that I, I like about what we do at Ruthless Perform, and one of the things that that we're really focused on is, you know, just ensuring a, a wide swath of of movement and and um, you know. Obviously, we're focused on weight training, but we're we're adamant that athletes, especially at a young age, try not to do the same sport throughout the year, but rather they're they're doing these other things as well. Yeah, and I don't I don't think there's a problem with doing a single sport all year as long as you're also mixing in, you know, a bit of others. I mean, you can always I mean, you think about like life in Florida where they're playing baseball year round. That's great, but I hope the kids like parents are having their kids play other sports outside as well. Um, even if it's just in their spare time, it doesn't have to be, to me, it doesn't have to be like a coordinated sport, but going to play basketball, pick up basketball or a small pickup baseball game or something just outside of your normal sport helps you no matter what. So moving uh, later into your career as, um, as you did begin to specialize more and more, what, what does your uh, training look like during the summer? I'm sure there's not too many, you know, iced out, loose tracks, even in the Adirondacks in August. Yeah, so we're not sliding uh, between the months of April and October. Maybe late September we'll get on ice. Um, and sometimes the season can push. Like right now in Lake Placid, it's February, or it's uh, April 23rd, and it is 26 degrees outside. Um, so it's cool enough right now to have a track. Uh, you know, we have some outlying circumstances at the moment. But um, for us in the summertime, a normal summer training, Monday through Friday, five days a week, um, we have a refrigerated indoor star facility here in Lake Placid. It's the only one in the country. It's about, uh, I'd say, 100 meters long. Oh. And we're able to utilize that all, all summer long where we can work on our star technique. In luge, the start is very important. It is said that you can't win a race at the start, but you can certainly lose one at the start. And it's a lot of technique work for us and just getting smaller muscles working at the right time and things like that and making sure every chain of, of muscles are firing in the way that they should be. And so we'll do a lot of repetition in there in the summer. We do a lot of uh, Olympic weightlifting. Um, and that's usually Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we'll do something like that. And then Tuesday, Thursday, we do, we play other games. We play volleyball, we play soccer, we play indoor hockey, um, continuing to work on coordination and body awareness. Um, but sometimes those games can get funny. I mean, huge athletes aren't the most athletic people in the world. Don't get me yeah. wrong. Um, but we do enjoy playing sports with each other. It also helps team bonding and team building. And we've gotten pretty good at volleyball. I believe that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one thing that's cool about that is like, we're not the only country that does that. There's other teams that do the same style of training. And during the season when we're on World Cup tour, we're at different locations every week. But we share gyms with other teams, other countries. And sometimes we'll get a gym, set up a volleyball net. Like, we'll be in there, and the Italians are in there, and we'll be like, let's play a game. Us versus you, let's go. That's and, awesome. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. You know, we get to be friends with all these other athletes from all over the world. Luge is a small sport. Maybe 140 people compete at the level that I compete at, and it's the same guys I compete with every year. So we get to know each other. We build these friendships and these bonds. We cheer for each other, even through nations in racing, which is cool. Um, you know, we're a big luge family, as we like to say. Um. But one thing I, I just kind of like to talk about there is, you know, what you talk about when you're saying, you know, you, you got pretty good at volleyball, but, you know, if you look in uh, historically, like in the Eastern Bloc countries um, at their weightlifting programs, one of the things that, that you'll notice about um, 
their weekly schedule is, is Sundays were geared towards what they call general physical preparedness, where they would spend the day just playing basketball and, and doing all kinds of things. And, and outside coaches at the time were like, you know, what the hell's up with this? But I think as we kind of move forward, we see that there's, there's more and more um, to be gained from kind of building that, the general uh, athletic base that you see in something like that. You know, even, even uh, in today's day and age with some of my younger athletes all, I'll bring them in and I'll have them just playing dodgeball with each other. And I think I get um, some, some interesting looks from parents some of the times because they're like, you know, what, what the hell's the value of this? But I think that that is, is such a formative skill in the development of an athlete, just this, the ability to, to recognize your body moving through space um, and to do so outside of what you're, what you're honing in as a, as a skill as an athlete. Um, there's, there's so much value in that. So these are, very, very validating things to hear that, and and I'm I'm happy to hear that these are are part of uh, what we're doing in the USA uh, in in our Olympic team. Yeah, it's and that's stuff that our coaching staff, you know, from the head coach, assistant coaching staff, all the way down to our physical trainers, they're all very supportive of us doing this and staying as active as possible. Good. What um so. What does um, let me see here. What does your your um, summer training look like outside of? So you said you have specifically you're doing a lot of Olympic weightlifting. That's fantastic to hear. Yep. Um, Not the easiest of lifting. Yeah. No. No. But that's it, it's interesting because there's there's a lot of times where um, you know s coaches will shy away from that just because of the complexity of some of these these exercises. Um, but you know, even when I was when I made it when I was in um, the Colorado Springs Training Center for the first time, and I was kind of looking through some of their training programs, um, it beautiful it, facility. It is. It is beautiful. And it was it was almost surprising to me to see the the level of skill that these athletes had in the sport of Olympic weightlifting, and, and it was kind of across the board. I mean, even even some of the Paralympic athletes. I mean, they're oh yeah, they're. It's insane what what they have these athletes doing. Yeah, I I had a, a one. I've been there once, Colorado Springs for a one week camp we did before uh, the summer before leading into Pyeongchang, and uh, yeah, I mean we all train pretty much our entire lives, and the coaching staff and the administrative staff are all super supportive of the workout programs, and the trainers are very specific on making sure we keep our form on everything. If you're not pushing yourself too much on weight and focusing more on technique. And then they say the more technique you have, the easier the weight goes up and they're not wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, it takes a while. People don't really, most people like to rush, um, you know, but it's a, it's a labor of love. And like you said, we've, we, we do the Olympic lifts the best we can. And uh, you know, but when you're working out with the weightlifting team, it, you look pretty bad. It's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. That one of my uh, my biggest memories of seeing their their strength and conditioning facility for the first time. It was the first time in my life I ever saw a hundred and forty pound uh, slam ball. So yeah. I mean, you know, you're you're dealing with some pretty pretty good specimens out there when they're throwing those things around. Yeah, the bobsled team's pretty big, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, a little bit earlier, you'd mentioned um, a time where where you you had a bit of a you had a crash, you had a wipeout. And you are going at some at, at some pretty high speeds um, on these tracks. What um, what? How do you um, how do you come to terms with, with the danger of the sport? Um, and so on. Well, we like I said, we start young, and I like to say this to anybody: we start young and dumb, and we just stay dumb. 
<laughs> um, we're kind of at, at this point after you, I've done this for so long. I mean, I've, I've taken tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand runs in my life. And, you know, I've, I've crashed a lot. Um, it's part of the sport. It's a learning le lesson. Um, you know, crashed many different ways, many different tracks, many different speeds. Sometimes the first curve flips you. Sometimes it's the last curve that flips you. It just depends. Um, Luge athletes tend to stay uninjured in crashes. Uh, it's pretty, it's, it's actually pretty easy to, if it's not an insane crash, to get back on the sled and finish the run is not impossible and not uncommon or unheard of. But I don't know. I, the fear of it has been gone for a very long time. When you said earlier that um, uh, Verizon was one of the, the flagship sponsors of the Luge team, I made me think with uh, the danger that it should be like Met, MetLife or some kind of uh, life insurance company. <laughs> yeah, uh, that'd, that'd be a great little tie-in. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, the fear's been gone. It's exciting still the, every time we go to a new track. So when we go to Beijing for the first time, host of the 2022 Olympic Games, that track has just been built. Uh, they were supposed to test it in March. Unfortunately, it got pushed back and canceled and postponed. Uh, they're supposed to be doing that now in the fall of this year. And then we all actually are supposed to go and compete there in the second to last World Cup of this upcoming season. Oh. And so we'll go there in the fall as well, I think, for a preseason camp after they do the homologation, it's called. Um, the first runs there will be a little nerve wracking. And that's just because it's new corners with new feelings that no one's barely anyone will have slid on yet. So we don't really understand the pressures in the corners and the, the top speeds haven't been reached. So we don't know how fast we're actually going to be going, which changes our steering and our, our mental prep for the run themselves. Um, so that first couple of runs there from the, the lower heights are a little nerve wracking because you're feeling something different than you move up, up on the track to get more speed and understanding. Um, I'm thinking probably the second or third day will be at the, at the actual start heights that we'll be competing from and then training for real. Um, I give it five days and then hopefully we have the track figured out and comfortable enough to go to the start and attack the start instead of just going through a motion to get ready to go. Fear um, of injury, I, I don't really have that anymore. It's definitely a possibility. Don't get me wrong. We all understand the risk that we take every time we get in the track, but the rush you get, the, the love of the sport overshadows any fear any day of the week. Good. Um, so one, I don't want to spend too much time on, on COVID, but obviously it, it is something that just because of the timeliness of it is, is something, something kind of worth bringing up. Would you be able to kind of give us a, a day by day of your traditional training, you know, your wake up schedule, things like that? and then kind of contrast that with what it's like with, uh, with the, the quarantine situation. Yeah, so in the, in the normal realm, um, I'd be up at 7.30 at the latest, take care of my dog here, um, get her good for the day, and I'd be at the training center by eight o'clock, uh, having breakfast ready to go by 8.30 in the gym, um, warming up, getting my body ready, um, nine o'clock, we usually would start our start technique training in the start house, the indoor refrigerated facility. Um, about an hour of that, 10 o'clock, we have a paddle training. Uh, we actually have a Mondo track, so like a rubberized track 
outside the training center. We take wheeled sleds there. We work on our form on our paddles, which is after we pull off the start blocks, we have gloves that are spikes to three fingers that we tape on and we actually dig into the ice in front of us and pull ourselves through kind of like throwing a ball with both hands running in track but with your arms. Um, usually about in a race run, three to five paddles and then you're laying down, but we do like 20 to 30 um, on the Mondo track to get ourselves going. It takes about 30 to 45 minutes. We do it in sets. Um, and then it's two to two and a half, three hours in the weight room, getting after it, grab a lunch, go into our sports medicine department and do some recovery. Um, what are the, the recovery modalities? We do a lot of hot tub, cold tub. We do as so a contrast. We do a lot of um, flushing with Norma tech pants, uh, rapid reboot pants, things like that. And then uh, you massage sometimes once a week, once every two weeks, we do a sports massage, um, which super painful but well worth the work you get done. Uh, you know, a day or two later, you feel much, much better than you did going in. Um, it's also something that I've been doing for years to try and maintain my health and, and elongate my career at, at the peak that I can be. Um, and so my body's a little used to it, but every summer when we come back, we take a, we get done with the season, we take about a month, a month and a half off. So right now with COVID, it's not too much of a change for me from my normal end of season, decompression, relaxation, reset mental for the summer training. But um, yeah, the days now with COVID going on, I don't have to set an alarm, which is nice. I get plenty of sleep, let my body rest as best I can. I try and do three to four workouts a week in my, in my apartment. Um, it's pretty much all body weight stuff. I don't really have any weights here in the apartment itself. So been working more on my core and getting my body ready to hopefully we'll get out of this shortly we'll be able to open up the gym in the training center and get back to my regular planned activity um i'm just trying to keep myself as as prepped as i can to get back in the weight room and get ready for next season after we wrap up here i'd love to show you some uh, some exercises that you could do at home i these even for me i'm not even i'm not competing in the olympics obviously but these home workouts are not getting it done whatsoever yeah it is it is not fun it's not fun not having a barbell in your hands it's, it's all it's all h h i i t hit workouts for me yep. now and i'm not big on that i we don't really do cardio my sport is like three seconds of intense physical labor and then lay down and relax the best you can absorb everything in the track so i don't do much cardio and mm -hmm. this stuff's been whooping me in that <laughs> stance but not so much on the feeling like i got the great workout in that my muscles are used to feeling that's it. Well, at least it, it is. It's good to hear that you're kind of making the best of the situation here. And it seems like, you know, it's unfortunate that it happened, but timing wise, it seems like it couldn't have come at a better time um, for your sport. My sport, yes. Every other sport, no. Yeah, they're not happy about it. <laughs> no, uh, especially major sports, but other Olympic sports had to cut their like ski jumping and cross country biathlon. They all had to cut their season short to get everybody home in time for the quarantine. And it's, it's, it really sucks to watch my friends, you know, these people that I could have trained with since I was a kid that are here in the training center, work their butts off, get to a season, working through the season, having a great year. And then what could have been a monumental year for them or a momentum building year, second year into a quad mm -hmm. cut short and kind of having some wind taken from their sails. So we got really lucky in our sport, but it's unfortunate for all these other athletes and, you know, especially these summer Olympic athletes that have to wait another year now for their 
their moment their time to shine yeah i i agree i with me i i again i work with a lot of swimmers and and a, a lot of this started especially in the piaa realm with um right in between the district meets and the state championship meets so um we it, you see these kids kind of work their ass off for districts and then you know qualify for the state meet and you know it's it's got to be bad for for olympians you know just given that um and, and world world uh world champions but you know it, it's a different thing when you see it and kind of that that youth level where where they can't really come to terms with it as well and it's it, it, it i mean it is what it is on one hand but on the other hand we you know there there is no plan going into this it's this is all improv man yeah. everything we're doing right now is improv and i mean that's a good in my opinion that's a great life lesson really because when you you know, not everybody goes to the Olympics, but when you go to, you know, that one big event, that, that goal setting thing for yourself, things don't always go as planned and you have to adapt to the situation. And that's exactly what the games are like. You get there, there's a plan, you know, you compete here. This is when you leave on the bus. Um, this is the schedule you have to follow and things change every other minute. You have to be able to adapt. And I think that, you know, right now we're all improvising the best we can. I think it's, it's going to be interesting life after COVID because I think things are going to be different, but I don't know. In, it's going to be good in some ways and bad in other ways. And I, it's going to be interesting to see where everything goes after all this is done. Yeah. I, I hope it doesn't uh, leave too much of a mark on athletes, you know, just kind of always uh, expecting the worst, which, which might be on one level good. But on the other hand, one of the things I like to tell my athletes is just to, to operate under the assumption that uh, everything's going to work out because you to, to achieve the highest levels in any in in performance, you need to you kind of constantly you need to be climbing that peak as, as to that peak as best you can without you know kind of looking down and a, and this can a lot kind of, of faith. yeah yeah in yourself yeah and this could kind of scar some people I think but yeah um one of the things that I I don't know if you have much of an input on uh, um yeah but you being that you do have some good relationships with some of these other nations and their, their Olympic programs. Um, I think the U S um, Olympic training model is a little bit different than, um, than most other countries that, that uh, receive a bit more national funding. Um, do you have any input on, on the kind of the strengths of the U S model versus um, the strength of some of the other countries? Um. So I do have great relationships with other athletes and, and other, a lot of other nations from, from the sport and from other sports as well. I mean, the sliding community is a very small community. So Bob Sutskelton, we, we know a lot of them as well, but sorry, Roxy. Um, I know they train differently than we do. And I know that a lot of that comes from uh, these mandates from their organizations, the national governing bodies for their sports and things like that. But when you look at the, the athletes, as a whole from a nation, I mean, we are dominant, especially in women's sports. It's incredible. Um, you know, our women's national soccer team, our women's national hockey team, uh, the women's swimming team, Katie Ledecky, swim, uh, Simone, uh, Swimone. I know, I know her name, her, her tag is Swimone on yeah. Instagram. Um, you know, these, they're dominant. Absolutely. Our men's programs are dominant in wrestling dominant in volleyball things like that and 
I don't know if it's got to do with how we train or, or the, the, the structure of our, our programming. It's working. Mm-hmm. Um, and it tends to be working a little bit better than other nations. I know I'm in a tech sport. Luge is at my level. We're all really good at sliding. We're, everybody's good. Everybody's had their crashes. They learn how to fix mistakes. We're timed to the thousandth of a second. And I've seen races tie to the thousandth of a second. So physically we're there, but when it comes to tech, you know, countries that have funding, Germany has big major funding. They're the dominant country in our sport. Have been for 20, 30 years now. There's other nations, Russia, Austria. We've made a huge jump. Um, Latvia, Italy, they're all making jumps right now tech-wise. And it's, it's evening the field out quite a bit. Um, but when it comes to athleticism, I think we have the most athletic team in almost every sport. Athletics, athleticism-wise, I think that's a safe bet. And I think a lot of that comes from our training in the summer, the models that we, we run through. Um, that's not saying other nations don't have a very similar models. Mm-hmm. We just tend to do a, seem to be doing it better, in my opinion. I get that. I, I'd like to kind of delve into what you just said about, um, you know, this being a tech sport. Um, and a little bit earlier, you mentioned that, you know, you, you had lost an event by, you know, hundreds of a second. What, at, at your level, um, what type of changes are being made to kind of help, help lose, help drop hundreds of a second here and there? What are, what are, the, what are the things um, that are popular these days or what are the new modalities to kind of help, help advance your career? So we're always experimenting with the sled setup. So in Luge, there's a couple main components. We have, you know, our sled runners. There are the metal blades that dig into the ice, give us our control, give us our steering. Um, you know, there's different compounds of metals that can be used to make them. Each metal has a different friction on the ice. Um, they have different hardnesses of the metals. Some are softer, better for specific ice conditions at certain humidities with the best temperature and a sunny day. And for us, it's been really big on our, our end for the technological advancement has been cataloging all this information. Um, and I know that it relates to other sports, ski team. U.S. has the best wax technicians in the world. The U.S. ski team, without a doubt, we have the best ski wax coaches. and. Wow. So what's really cool for us is we're all a part of Team USA. We're one big family. Our coaching staff will get in touch with some of those tech guys and be like, okay, well, in Luge, sometimes it's snowing and not all the tracks covered. And so sometimes we ride through some snow. What can we, what composite can we put on our runners that makes it a little less friction going through stuff we're not supposed to be riding on? Because when there's snow in the track, you're getting a lot more of the runner itself brushing up against the snow. So if we can put a little bit of wax on the steel to help us pull through that a little bit like a ski would, why wouldn't we do it? And so for us, it's been cataloging, talking to other other teams, other coaching staff, trying to get as much information as we can. Um, but the Austrians, the Germans, these guys have been doing this cataloging for 30 years prior to us. So they already have all this information and they were able to to get their sleds to be at the peak performance well before we were and now we're getting ours there and they're all they're getting worried oh the u.s team's making big jumps it's like well we're catching up we're not making jumps yet we're going to when we get all this information together we're going to use our sponsors that create our sled equipment which you know 
from the runners all the way to the pod we're laying in. The whole package comes from different sponsors with different components, different um, core materials, different flexes and things. And when we're able to fine tune it all, we should hypothetically, you know, have the best equipment in the world because we have the sponsors. We work with Dow Chemical. We work with U.S. Steel. Um, we work with all these great companies that when they have time, they give us their resources. And, you know, we're a small sport. We get it. We don't need all your time. We appreciate any time we can get with any of these sponsors. And it's the last seven, eight years when we started implementing some of this equipment involved into the sled, we've seen bigger jumps. Um, you know, we, we hadn't, before 2014, we had never medaled in singles for the United States in luge. We had two medals, or four medals in doubles, I'm sorry. 1998 and 2002, we took silver and bronze in both games in doubles luge. And then nothing until 2014 when my, at the time, teammate Aaron Hamlin scored the first ever bronze medal for the United States in singles. And then the last Olympics in Pyeongchang, my doubles partner right now, Chris Mazder, scored a silver medal. Uh, became the first man ever. Aaron was the first United States athlete ever, the first woman, and Chris is the first man. And it shows that these implementations are working. We're giving ourselves the opportunity. We still need to perform as athletes, don't get me wrong. Like, just because you're the fastest son in the world doesn't mean you're going to win a race. You have to take that thing down the hill, and you have to do it well. And when we do changes to the sled, we, we can – one thing that's super easy to be relatable to is we can lower the angle of the, sled, of the runners into the ice. So you're giving yourself less friction, it's less control, but it's faster because you're, you have less friction. Like a, a, a speed skate versus like a hockey skate. Exactly. It's more streamlined. And so when you do that, you're, you're sacrificing control of the sled. You may still have some control. You might not just have what you're comfortable with or what you're used to, but if you're able to get that thing down the hill in what we call a risky setup, it, it tends to go fast or, or fly, as we like to say. And I've definitely danced the line of too far out of control. And it's put me in ways of not getting the results that I probably should have gotten because we made mistakes. But it's also helped me in some races where um, in 2017, the 16-17 season, my teammate at the time, Matt Mortensen, and I were in fourth place in the overall heading to the final race of the year. We were 12 points back from a German doubles team that would have completed a German sweep of the overall podium. Germany, 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 one, two, three, nine races, all the points, or sorry, 12 races, all the points of a, a full season. And then in the last race of the year, we were well over hundred points ahead of fifth place. So we couldn't drop any farther back. And we knew, well, what do we have to lose here? We're either gonna get fourth place or we're gonna, we're gonna get third. We're not gonna drop back to fifth. Let's do it. We set the set up as risky as possible. Um, after the first round of the race, I just, I just watched this race again, uh, a week ago, I was getting a little cabin fever and needed to think about sliding. So I watched this race. It's one of my favorite. It's my favorite day of my life so far. Um, after the first round of the race, we were in third place and the team that we were behind was in second place and it's a 15 point gap. So we were back 12 already. And they were going to be 17 or another 15, so 27 points ahead at the end of the day. Matt and I had never medaled outside the United States. So we were already happy with where we were sitting. We're like, let's push even farther. We had a great first run on a very risky setup. We felt comfortable. We had gone risky all week in training. 
hadn't had an issue. We're like, let's keep going. Let's push it. We have nothing to lose again. Let's do it. Second run comes up. In luge, the way it goes is after the first run, they, they take the second run in reverse over a finish. So the slowest guys go first. They get the best ice, best opportunity to go fast in a second run. And it, the track will deteriorate as the, as the session goes or as the run continues. Um, I was sitting at the start. We go through a very big routine because we need to get ourselves mentally prepared. And a lot of that preparation comes from physical ticks. Um, we're sitting at the start. I'm really good friends with this German team. Like, like I said, we're all family. We're all rooting for each other. You know, these are the guys that I hang out with when we're not sliding on tour. Like I go over to their hotels or their apartments when we're in their hometowns. We have dinner together. We have a beer. We chit chat. Um, and I remember sitting on the start. I'm ready to go. They clear the track for us. I put my face shield on, which is our, our plastic cover to keep our faces from getting windburn or if you flip over ice burn. And, uh, I grab onto the set of straps that my teammate has for me to help pull the start. I look over to my left where the other team is still standing, waiting for us to go. And then they prep to go. And I wink. I look at them both. I wink. <laughs> I turn my head back. We pull off. We had a great run. We beat our first run time, which no one had done in the second run. We get to the finish. We had about a, a little less than a 10th of a second to make up on that team. And we're sitting at the finish. You stand in the leader's box. There's a TV in front of you. You're watching the next team go. And we watch them pull off. There's splits all the way down the track. And the way our TV production works is if you're behind, you're red. If you're ahead, you're green. Your, your clock shows green. And these guys are in the green by almost a tenth of a second to start. They pull off. They have a clean run. But slowly, all the way down the track, we're gaining on them. We're gaining on them. We're picking up time. Uh, it went from a tenth to eight hundredths, eight hundredths to six hundredths, six hundredths to four hundredths at the second to last split. When they're coming around the final three corners of the track, and we know we're gaining on them because of the way the clock has been showing, we just don't know how much we're gaining on them. Um, there's a speed trap headed into the final corner, and we were going a full kilometer an hour faster than they were into the final spin. It comes across the finish line. The light is still green. His uh, Robin is the name of the the top driver on this German sled. His foot crosses the finish line. The light goes from green to red. We beat them by four hundredths of a second. <laughs> For a silver medal, guaranteed silver medal in that World Cup. First time Matt and I ever podiumed in Europe. We were already going to be stoked even if we hadn't overtaken them in the run. We were like, we did it finally in Europe in Germany. German-dominated sport. We beat Germany in Germany, at least one team, because there's three in the competition. Stoked on that. They come across the line. The light goes from green to red. We are ecstatic. It was one of the highest highs I will ever experience in my life. Um, immediately gut-wrenching for my friends that just got beat. Uh, the 15-point swing put us three points ahead of them in the overall. And they ended up third. We ended up second on the day. It was just enough to what we had to do. And what made it all so much sweeter is the week before that, we were in Sochi competing in the uh in the world cup there and matt and i my teammate we were in first place after the first run and in the second run we crashed and ended up is, in ninth and is that this was the same track for the olympics yes yeah. and that's what put them ahead of us going into the final race so it was we were in third one week then we were put in fourth the next week and then we said screw it we're going to risk everything and we got ourselves back on that podium that's and awesome. uh yeah that was one of the that's my favorite race 
and I don't think it outshines the Olympics in any way, but it's a full year competition to come down to the final race, the final track, three points, four hundredths of a second in one run. Like this is one of the coolest things I'll ever do. Um, well, that comes the back. Coolest, got me the coolest trophy I'll ever have. I have a crystal globe. It was the first time in 14 years the United States had put a doubles team on an overall podium. That's um, awesome. Yeah, it was it was the best full season of my life, and that was probably the best race I'll ever have. Well, that, that race is a kind of a culmination of, of what I alluded to before with the idea of kind of operating under the assumption that everything's going to work out. Because if you start if you start second guessing anything, I mean, you know, wh where do you end up now? Fourth, fifth even? I mean, there's... Nobody wants to be fourth, man. Can't play it safe. Yeah, no. Yeah. No. You don't want second because it feels like crap because you lost. But then you want third because you're like, oh, I got on the podium. There we go. <laughs> Um, one of the, one of the things I, I did kind of want to talk about, you know, just, I, I work with a lot of athletes and, and we're always, uh, you know, looking to make our athletes better. And, and one of the things I think a lot of athletes could take from you is, um, uh, what, what are some of your, your race day strategies? How do you, how do you cope with stress? What are you doing? Are you, are, you know, is there, are you kind of jacked up on caffeine and, uh, you know, are you meditating? What's, what's your plan? What's your, what are you eating on, on big race days and, and how are you preparing the night before? I don't uh, stray too far from my training in any way. Um, I go into every day the same. We do, I mean, it's a big routine sport. It's a 90% mental sport because um, you have to be ready to react at the, the run not going the way you expected at all times. So you're, you're overthinking all the time, and that's what allows us to make these reactions and these steers at split-second increments. And uh, so for me, I just – I'll eat the same thing every – well, not the same thing every morning, but – um, everywhere we go to compete, it's kind of like, uh, we usually eat breakfast at like a rest, a, a hotel restaurant. So it's constantly the same. Um, not a lot of change there, not a lot of variation. And then I just, I like to listen to music before racing. I, I get to the track early. I like to get my seat. Even if it's not the same seat every time, I like to get myself a spot to sit down in the, in the start house and I have a, a little bit of my own space so I can stay in my own head. Um, but I tend to take every race like I take training. And I, I've seen athletes change their their technique to competing that they do to training. And I, I was always raised, no, you train how you're going to compete. And I took that as literally as possible. And so I try to go into every training day like I'm competing as well. So I try to I try to pull the fastest starts that I can every day. But to an extent, we also do percentage every day like some days you know ramping up to competition the first day on the start we'll pull 40 50 percent next day 70 80 like getting ready getting more and more potential into it and everything like that but by the final day of training we're at 100 percent. you're going all out that way you're not changing something on race day and this happened to one of my teammates this year she was training at a lower percentage all week on her start not pulling as fast as she could uh we were racing in whistler she pulls off the start, gives it 100%, and something went wrong. She got unbalanced on the sled. She settled crooked right into a wall, and it flipped her. And it cost her It cost her a lot, actually. She, was, she ended up fifth in the world this season, but I think she ended up last in that competition, which is the minimum amount of points you can get, where she could have won that race. She was winning in training time even without pulling full starts. And it got her out of the next day's competition that you had to qualify for in the World Cup the day prior. 
and that's a full 100-point opportunity gone. So I think she learned a lesson. I didn't, didn't see this one more time all season where she wasn't, at least the day before, going at it 100% ready to go. And that's what I like, to, you know, for us as, as athletes and teammates, that's what we like to see from each other is the growth. And that's she's been doing the sport a little less than me. I'm, I'm one of the more senior athletes on the team. Um, but she in no right is a rookie to the sport. She's a two-time Olympian, just like I am. We went to the same two Olympic games. And I'm a little older, maybe a little wiser on that end. But she's, it's, it's good to see my teammates still maturing in that stance. And she's been third in the world twice in her, in her career. So um, to see her still continue to grow and learn and, and become better shows me that I can do the same thing. We can all continue to grow and learn from each experience we have. Um, that, I think that's the only thing we can do is just kind of learn from each other. And, and you almost have to, people only think about um, the actual uh, time on the track on, and the meets, the championships as, as the meets, at, as the competition. But in reality, I mean, you need, to, you need to go into each training day like it is a competition because yeah. if you're not, someone else out there is going into it with that, with that mindset. Yeah. And Luge is kind of unique in the sense of, you know, we train all this time, all these hours in the summer. Uh, we still continue weight training in the wintertime during slotting season. We only spend a maximum of three to three and a half minutes on the track five days a week. Oh. So we train all this time to do something for 15 minutes, 16 minutes a week. And when you're competing, it comes down to a minute and a half to three minutes. That's it. That's all you get. So you have to really absorb as much as you can doing anything. Luge is such a repetitive sport that I, you know, in the summertime, I still play baseball every year. Now it's men's softball, but it's still playing sports. Um, I like doing that because swinging a bat is the same every time you try to mimic the same thing. Um, I play a lot of golf. And that to me is one of the best sports for other sports because it's 100% mental. Once you figure out a swing, it's 100% mental to get yourself back to doing the same thing every time. Mm -hmm. And that's what we try to do in luge is the same thing every time. Granted, nothing ever works the same every time. And it's never the right, perfect golf swing every time. You don't hit the ball dead center every time with the right spin or whatever you're trying to do. So it's a good learning tool for me to be able to control my emotions while competing or playing a sport, being able to be repetitious with my actions and my, my mental approach to everything. And I think that really helps me uh, you know, with my, with my real job. <laughs> well, what, um, so one of the last things I, I you know, close it in on an hour here, but one thing I would kind of, uh, I would like to get your opinion on and, and just your story on realistically is, you know, what was, so it's 2014, you're going into the Olympics. What, what is that experience like for you emotionally? I mean, just the, the plane ride there, again, getting into the Olympic village, um, you know, showing up with all these, these, I mean, uh, these are the elite of the elite. What's that uh, like emotionally? It's a trip, man. It's uh, so the games happened in February of 2014. Uh, I made my Olympic birth on December 13th of 27 or uh, 2013. Sorry. So I knew I made the Olympic team. Great. You know, Big I'm weight psyched. off your shoulders. Huge. Um, I had failed to qualify prior for Vancouver. Um, but I was 21. I was a young guy on the senior tour. Like, 20 years old, you jump from the junior to the senior tour. So I didn't have expectations of myself. 
at those games coming back. You know, it's my second time through this whole crazy circus of qualifying for the games. Finally do it in the last day that I possibly could. In the last, we had a, ended up having a race off. It came down to two teams. We had one spot. Good luck. Two runs. Winner take all. Um, won that race by a quarter of a second against our younger teammates, which was what we kind of were expected to do. Um, they do this big announcement. The Luge team has their Olympic team announcement. It's a big thing. Uh, press conference on the, the, the 14th of December. And then we go home for Christmas. And you deal with interviews of being, we're one of the first sports to announce our team. And so you kind of get a little hype off that because everybody's gearing up for the Olympics that are two months away. And then you're chosen. Team USA announces you're on the team. Um, on their social medias and things like that, press releases. And then it kind of starts this whirlwind. Again, small sport. We don't get a lot of attention all the time. We're not used to it. And then all of a sudden, boom, you're getting all these people wanting to talk to you, media, TV uh, personalities, radio talk shows, podcasts, um, newspaper articles getting written. People are interviewing you and you're like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like I get to tell my story and everybody's listening. This is Mm -hmm. great. I remember um, I was in I was in Bloomsburg when uh, at, at Bloomsburg University when when you were I, right around that time when everything was getting announced and I mean it was you were you were all over everything I, I go to Berwick Brewing a lot and I mean you yeah. were uh, on uh, on even just on on some of the the signs going through town and yeah you, everywhere you had man it. <laughs> it was it was that was cool um, getting all that recognition after. I'd already been competing for, I was 25, almost uh, at least 14 years, um, five years on the senior tour and three years on the junior tour. You come home and see all that was really, it's surreal. I was on a billboard in 2018. <laughs> like, that's cool. Uh, I, that's not anything I ever thought I'd see, you know. Like I said, we start with like 13 kids at the development program. I was one of those kids. I'm the only one from my first three years that's that was still doing the sport back in 2014. Um, so it was a lot of work and improving myself and then to get all that recognition was nuts. Then after Christmas of 2013, we have to go back on World Cup tour. So we go back to Europe, we start competing. We have three or four more races, five more races before the Olympic games and then we finished our World Cup season off in where I think we were in Germany, the last race before the Olympics. And then you go to team processing about five days before opening ceremonies. You go to Team USA's Olympic team processing. And that happened to be happening in Munich um, because that was the focal point for people to go on a flight from Munich straight to Sochi. And so Team USA rents out this hotel. They bring nike and polo and all these the sponsors of every oakley all these things they come in they they take over a conference center and it's like these booths and you just you get invited we were there on the unfortunately for doubles luge we get invited to the last day of team processing so you go through all these the vendors and you try on your clothes like this is from 2014 i haven't i've worn this thing in seven like six six years and Still brand new, um, but you go in, you get fitted because they don't want 
you know, you're at the Olympic Games, there's cameras everywhere. They want you looking good in their gear, and we should. Um, but so you're going to last day. Almost everybody's already gone through, so you're not seeing other athletes so much. You're seeing your teammates. But uh, I learned at the 2018 processing that sometimes you get to go in with, like, Sean White. Oh, wow. Or, you, like, or like, Hillary Knight's there or um, – Wow. Uh, Stephanie, not Stephanie, Michaela Schifrin. Sorry, I don't know why I just blank on Michaela's name, but like I got to meet them my second time through because it just happened to be on the same day. But my first time through, just getting all the clothes, super cool experience. You're just, you're on cloud nine, you're hyped, adrenaline's running. Um, the next day, they fly you to Sochi and you get to the Olympic Village. You're a day or two before opening ceremonies. You're in the village walking around. You're getting to see all these athletes from other countries because we all stay in the same area. Um, you make new friends. And you get to kind of just absorb what you can. We don't start training until the third day of the Olympics for doubles. So uh, I got to go and watch my teammates compete in singles the first two days of the men's competition. And then I got to watch Aaron medal in uh, – the day before I competed. So the, women, the men compete the first few days. Women are day three and four. Doubles is day five. Team events day six. And I got to uh, – unfortunately, I didn't get to go watch the medal live because I was prepping my sled and getting myself ready for my competition the next day. And like I said, I don't stray away from routine. my normal routine. Yep. And so I actually sat in the Team USA only little slot in our hotel or in our in our village that had big TVs. and. We were just flipping through channels. They have live feeds of all the sports going on. So I'm sitting there watching. And I had met Sean White at opening ceremonies, which is a whole different experience. That's something that I'll never forget. But I got to meet Sean White. Coolest dude. I come from a small sport. He doesn't know who I am. I walk up. I'm like, dude, I watched your MTV Cribs when I was a kid. Like, <laughs> this is a guy. I've been watching him skateboard since I was a child watching him snowboard since I was a young adult and to watch someone like that, he's like the Tony Hawk of snowboarding to me. This guy came in, he changed the sport incredibly. So he's been a hero of mine and I got to meet him. We took a photo together, super chill. I'm sitting there watching Aaron compete in her third run while Sean White is training for his half pipe finals. He's got like an hour off. So he comes into the village and comes into this little spot where I'm watching Aaron and he, he sits down next to me. We start talking about luge. He's getting ready for an Olympic finals event within an hour. But the way he does it is he goes and relaxes and does something else. Like that's his thing. That's cool. But I got to spend time with him. That was to me, one of the coolest exchanges I've ever had. I got to teach luge to Sean White. Wow. Um, which was awesome. And uh, then I got to compete and I got 11th. Cool. I didn't have, any expectations of myself coming in. I hadn't been a, we hadn't reached a top 10 result all season. Uh, my teammate was 36 years old at the time. He was on his way out. He was going to his third and final Olympics. And he, he was just there to be there and, and experience, you know, go through that one more time. I was in gain experience because I knew for me, I wanted to be ready next time. So I just went in, no expectations. I'm here to have fun. This is the Olympic games. I'm going to enjoy it the best I can. Competed, had a blast. Wasn't the race I wanted, but it is what it is. Wasn't expecting anything, but qualified for the team event the next day. Um, 
It's actually the first time the team event had been in the Olympics. So I got to be in an inaugural event at the Olympic Games, which was really cool in itself. Uh, we finished in sixth place, exactly a quarter of a second from the podium. Um, it was pretty crazy. But then after that, we're done. And that was day six of the Olympics. There's nine more days. I got to go to other events. I got to go watch the women's hockey team. I got to go watch downhill skiing. I got to go watch the curling team. Like That's where I had the most fun, going to watch my teammates. And I know a lot of sports don't get to do that because they compete all the way through. Like hockey is they do the round robin tournament and then they do the medal tournament. So they're competing all the time. They don't get to go do that. Mm-hmm. Um, bobsled competes on the last weekend of the games. So they don't get to do it. They're training all the way through and then they compete and then it's over and we get on a flight home. Uh, so that's something I'm very lucky to get to experience is going and watching other teams compete. Uh, I took advantage of that again in 2018. I went and watched the gold medal curling match. Um, one of my buddies, Matt Hamilton, is actually on. He's on that team, and uh, we've been friends ever since. We actually golf together every year in a uh, in a charity tournament. Uh, that's actually where I met Michael Phelps as well oh. in that same tournament. Um, but for me, just the best part of the games was making new friends, getting new experiences, things that I'll hopefully get to do again. Even after I retire, I'll I'll try and go to Olympic Games and and watch events as a as a member of. Team USA, you're always welcome through your lifetime to the Team USA house, um, which is great. It's one of the coolest atmospheres because everyone there is for Team USA. You're watching jumbo TVs with – I met Bonnie Blair, uh, Olympic champion in speed skating from the 80s. She was at the, the Team USA house in Pyeongchang. I got to take a photo with her and hear her stories of her competitions. Like, it creates a network that you – I would never have the ability to talk to these people. Otherwise, if I hadn't given my life to the sport that I decided I was going to do when I was 10 years old. Um, and it's crazy to think that that's what a decision you make when you're a child can do for your future. And I'm very lucky that I had the support system that allowed me to do all this, all this time. I, I think it's, it's interesting that you said about um, that you did have some time after, after you were done competing, because I, I hear some stories about the Olympic village and, and I don't think you really get to fully utilize the Olympic Village unless you're uh, you're done competing earlier. Uh, Absolutely. There's no question. I mean, there's the Olympics is a big party. Mm-hmm. Every every country has their own house, and every house has this theme. And like, you know, the German house has the great German beer. You go there for for beers with your buddies on the German team, and then you go to the you go to the Italian house for the cheese trays and stuff like that. It's it's pretty crazy and. There's always something going on. There's always like a Red Bull party or an event you can go to. Um, and it's, it's about managing your time when you're done because you can't see everything, but you can try and maximize the most out of your experience. And it's definitely the first time I was like, oh my God, there's so much to do. And I burned myself out. Just trying to get to event to event and, and see everything I could. And then the next time I threw, I was like, ah, I'll go to this today and I'll get a good night's sleep so I can do that tomorrow. And, I made for a better overall experience, um, not trying to overdo it. Yeah. So la- last thing I'd kind of, I'd like to talk about, you know, you said you're, you're going into what you anticipate is going to be your last Olympic uh, season. What kind I said of that last time too. I said that uh, last time too. 
Well, well, we, we hope it's not. We hope it's not. I, I, I hope you the best with your career. But what? So, what kind of mental talk are you using? What are you? What are you telling yourself to kind of really ensure that you're you're getting the most out of each training session? And and how are you kind of how are you conceptualizing this in in the bigger picture? Um, well, for me, it's pretty simple. I mean, the the fourth place result at the Olympic Games was one of the most emotional days of my life, and in a great way to begin. I was on cloud nine when we finished the run. We were um, we, in the in the team event. We don't get to watch while we're doing it. Like um, it's super unique. So the team events, a man, a woman, and a doubles team from each country. One one representation per country. That's all you get. One team per nation. And it starts out with the woman going, taking a regular run, and she gets to the finish line. And there's a pad hanging. She spanks the pad, and the gates at the top fly open man the singles man does a reaction start at the at the at the gate opening he gets through the start the gates close he gets to the finish line hits the same pad gates open at the top for the doubles team that had prepared reaction start get to the bottom pad time stops we didn't know it but we were about a tenth of a second back when matt and i the gentleman in that photo there the taller guy um <laughs> We pulled off on, on the start. We were about a tenth of a second behind the Italian team. And similar to the story I had earlier about the race in Germany, we started gaining immediately on the track. We had that, like I said, we were, we were going in with metal hopes. Um, we made mistakes in the doubles competition, ended up 10th. But we were training in five of, our, five of our six training runs for the games. We were in fourth place. One of them, we got silver, and one of them, we crashed. So we were, we were there. We were, we were at at peak, we were doing everything right. Um, we pulled off that run. We were about a tenth of a second back. We had a great run. It was the kind of run, you know, I, the race I had in Germany was the race of my life. That run was the run of my life. Um, there's no such thing as a perfect run in luge, but if I had to say I've ever had one, it was that run. And their deficits started dropping just like the Germans had in the past. And we got to the finish line, we beat them. When we hit the pad, the light went from red because we were behind to green by two one thousandths of a second. Uh, it takes you eight, eight thousandths to blink. Wow. So pretty damn close of a race. Um, there was only three teams left to go at the top, three countries left to go. We had the Canadians, the Austrians, and the Germans left. They were the top three countries in that race all season. Um, and we were the outside chance to make the podium. So we came up in first. And I tell you what, I don't think I've ever celebrated like that ever. I, there was so much emotion because we had failed the day before on our goal to reach a podium at the Olympics in the doubles competition. And we had one last chance and that chance happened and we ended up well, really seizing the moment and having that run we, we, we want to have when everybody's watching. We want to prove that we can do this to, and be the best doing it. And uh, coming up the outrun, the finish, after we hit the pad, our teammates, um, Summer and Chris, were going nuts. And that just hyped us up even more. Because we just had that run. We were, we were so, so excited for ourselves. And then you see these people are super excited. And we're like, oh, my God, yeah, we did it. We, we, we did it. And, uh, and then you sit in the leaders box and you watch. The next three teams come. And it takes about 15 minutes for three teams to go. And it went from such a high 
and slowly, you know, Canada comes yeah. down to beat you. Notch. Austria comes down. And their girl, their, their female representative, hadn't had a clean run in training or in competition at the Olympic Games yet. And she nails the section that she'd been having so much trouble in. And I felt my stomach just drop because that was our chance. We knew Canada was going to fly and we knew Germany was going to win the race. There was no question the Germans won singles. They won um, doubles. They won the women's competition. They were going to win this team event. We, we knew it was coming. Um, barring no major mistake, which is very rare from that program. Um, this girl comes through that sh- this very tricky section, nails it, stomach drop, and then they beat us by .106 at the end of the day. And that's what knocked us off the podium because the Germans did came down. They, they smoked everybody by half a second, like just destroyed people. And uh, in that 15, you know, 18 minutes, I went from bang to gone. <laughs> And now when I train, all I have to do is think about that feeling. Uh, You know, I like to think that I trained my ass off before, but there's nothing that fuels you like failure. And it's not a big failure. Like I got fourth at the Olympic games. Like, yeah, that's not a bad place to be. That's not a, that's not a bad, that's not a bad failure, but I remember, I don't, I don't ever want, I mean, yeah, it could happen again. Don't get me wrong. The possibility of that same result is there. And it could be even more gut-wrenching. It'd be a closer race. Like I said, we beat the Italians in that competition by two one-thousandths of a second. If we had reached the podium, imagine what crushing that would have been for them. And, uh, and I only think about that because they're my friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if I didn't care for any of those people, I don't whatever. But you know, I I we have personal relationships with all these people, and it's the best part of the sport, in my opinion. But now when I train, I there's so much more fire. I like a tenth of a second. Ah, are you yeah. kidding me? But you know, I've I've got this photo here from 2017 World Championships. And I've got another trophy on my wall on this side from this year's world championships. And for us, the world championships are the Olympics of the season. We just, we don't have the Olympics every year. So there's one major competition where you try to peak at. And I got silver in this competition in 2017. And we just got bronze this year back in Sochi. Um, you know, we, I, it's not me. It's a team event. It's a team sport. I don't do singles luge. I do doubles luge. There's two of us on the sled. But those medals show me and they give me the belief in myself that I belong here. It might just not have been my day, but we are good enough. We can fight for podiums. We will be competing at our best level when we can and try and get ourselves there. And we've shown we can do it when major competitions are, are happening. We just need to do it in February of 2022 now. Hopefully. That's awesome. I, I, that's, and that's we, such I mean, a it's not, it's not just these races. There's also World Cups. And mm. we use those as, as, like I said, as learning tools. And we've reached podiums there. We've reached overall podiums in the team event as well. So we are a force to be reckoned with when our three sleds have good runs. Yeah, Germany probably will beat us. 
probably they have to they have to be on their game when we have our runs like we can they need to be on point and it's the same though with other strong nations Austria's the same way Latvia is the same way Italy Canada scored that silver medal at the Olympics like they can do it any there's seven or eight nations that can fight for podiums you just have to have your day and you need your teammates to also have their day they just all need to line up I think until uh, until that race is over and until that medal goes on your neck, I think um, I think each athlete is is kind of in, in control of their own destiny. And I think up until that moment, I mean, there's there's so much that we could do to kind of maximize our performance and, and maximize what we're doing to win and 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 what we're doing to excel. And 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 that's such a such a healthy such a competitive mindset. And I, I think a lot of that better. I think a lot of that comes to looking within, though, um, especially in team sports or individual sports you can't control what the other athletes or teams are doing you can only control your part of what you're doing so you need to be doing what you can to the best of your ability and hope that everyone else does the same thing does their jobs and it comes to the result that you're hoping for trying to i guess the the old adage about uh the the weakest link in the chain kind of breaks the chain absolutely and you need to i mean yeah, Luge is an individual sport. This team event thing is super unique for us, but we try to build each other up when we do that. It's, uh, it got introduced about a decade ago to the World Cup Tour and the World Championship competitions and then into the games in 2014. So it's still kind of a new – I mean, Luge dates back to the 60s, so it's still kind of new. Um, and it's unique in the fact that it becomes a team sport in that stance, so it's, it's cool to, to have that involved. It kind of just adds to the to the whole realm of luge, which is cool for me. Awesome. Well, I I don't know what you have going on over there. I I, I would like to show you some exercises after this if we could do that. I think there's there's some there's some cool stuff that you could do, even though working out at home does is kind of terrible. Um, where where would you like to direct people um, in terms of you know finding you online or or learning more about you? Um, for me, my biggest outlet is uh, Instagram. And it's just my name, J-A-Y-S-O-N-T-E-R-D-I-M-A-N, Jason Turdeman. Um, that's where I'm most active. There's a fan page on Facebook. I rarely update. Um, Facebook's just not really my thing anymore. Facebook is terrible. Yeah, I think it's slowly just not, yeah, it's not what it used to be or what it should have been or whatever. But um, I just lost interest in that. Uh, we need to bring on, MySpace back. On it. Yeah, <laughs> that's the second time in a week I've heard MySpace. Yeah, that's, maybe we're on to something. Yeah. Well, maybe we should buy the domain. <laughs> All right. Well, I uh, I'm I'm glad to have oh, yeah, sat down. Instagram's definitely the best way to keep along. Cool. Like I said, I'm glad to have had this opportunity to to talk to you, and I I look forward to to following your your performance throughout these next couple of years. And I well, thank you. Even if uh, even if the next next go around is the last one, I wish you nothing but the best. And and we know we know how high that podium can get. And I look forward to seeing you on it. Oh, thank you very much. Any flavor tastes good to me. <laughs> we we know which one. We we got we got one in mind though. I think. Oh yeah, always. Got to beat right. Germany for that one. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jason. Hey, my pleasure, John. Thanks for having me.
The Human Advancement Podcast is a division of Ruthless Performance, whose focus is creating champion athletes through the application of sports science, expert collaboration, and the ruthless pursuit of excellence. You can learn more about Ruthless Performance by visiting ruthlessperformance.com, specifically through our online education tab. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at ruthlessperform. The Human Advancement theme was written by Bernie Wallace Savage. Find him at wallacesavage.bandcamp.com and on Instagram at Bernie.Wallace Savage.